Welcome to Difference Makers, where we bring you profound and enlightening conversations with remarkable people who make a difference through innovative and inspiring charity work. On this podcast, you'll hear the incredible stories of real-life Difference Makers, learn about the worthy causes and charities they support, and discover how charity work changes lives for the better. So we face these enormous challenges in this day, in these days, and can feel really hemmed in with suffering and injustice and just the overwhelmingness of the challenges of our day. But I think the message to us remains, what is it in your hand? We can't do everything, but we all have something that we can do. What's in your hand? I'm Aldiseris, and in this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with the directors of the International Social Justice Commission, Colonels Janet and Richard Munn, who are making a difference by advocating and advising to put an end to injustice in the world. Welcome, Colonel Janet. Welcome, Colonel Richard, to Difference Makers. It's an honor to have you here this evening to speak with our community about the amazing work that you are doing through the International Social Justice Commission which is a bit of a mouthful. So if you don't mind, I'm going to call it the ISJC. And I think that's how you refer to it as well. So if we could, let's just jump right in. The ISJC is part of the Salvation Army. And full disclosure, our our audience, I work for the Salvation Army. So this is really near and dear to my heart. So if you wouldn't mind, why don't you introduce our community to the work you're specifically doing, but also tell them a bit about the Salvation Army. Thank you, Val. Great for us to both be here with you. Appreciate the invitation. Yeah, the Salvation Army was founded in 1865 and celebrated its uh, 150th year just in 2015. So we've been around quite a while, since 1880 in the USA. But the ISJC, the International Social Justice Commission, is only 14 years old. So we're sort of a babe in this larger group that's uh, spread around the globe. We're organizationally affiliated with International Headquarters, which is in London, but our facility is on the east side of Manhattan, New York City, just three or four blocks away from the United Nations building, which is quite important. So we're on East 52nd Street. We've been there since 2007, and um, it is the privilege for Janet and me to serve as directors. We've been in that role for two years. The choice of the building was very strategic because there's a long-standing relationship between the Salvation Army and the United Nations. And um, the records indicate we were a founding member right from the very beginning in the late 1940s, when the world was coming together again after the horrors of World War II. The UN was founded and the Salvation Army was a faith-based organization right in the very first few years. And we've been there ever since. I would say our profile has increased in the last 14 years because of the ISJC, but that's why we have our building in New York, although we relate very much to international headquarters in London. Now, I'm curious, what brought you you and your wife to the Salvation Army? Because obviously this is a lifelong commitment. This is something that people don't do unless they're extremely passionate about. So I'm curious, what drew the two of you to the organization? Well, for me, it started working at a Salvation Army summer camp for uh, disadvantaged children from the inner city. And that was my first exposure, really, to my first awareness of social inequities and injustice in communities. I was a teenager, hadn't really seen that before. But through the Ministry of the Salvation Army summer camping program, 
I grew to love the children and really appreciate the mission of just loving on these kids and giving them a great week or two out at the summer camp. And it really changed my heart. And I never left. I was a teenager a long time ago. But that sort of exposure to uh, children, people, and that we could come and help them and love on them and build community with them was very compelling for me. And then uh, that just stuck with me over the years. And then a number of years ago, uh, we were leading a community in London, in the UK, that had leaders from the Salvation Army all around the world. So every country in which the Salvation Army serves, over 130 countries, uh, leaders from those countries would come in to like a residential sabbatical program, and we were facilitating that experience for them for eight weeks. So we came to know each other very deeply and to hear each other's stories. And that included some stories of real suffering and uh, injustice that people were experiencing in various contexts around the world. Within These are Salvation Army leaders who were laboring earnestly and diligently in communities that had great difficulties. And so that also, that was uh, well into my adulthood by this time, but that began to really change my heart. And I was already serving full time with the Salvation Army by this point. But when I heard particularly the stories of some of those women from certain contexts, uh, as they were leaving this community together after our eight weeks in life, sharing life together, a couple of them turned to me as they left and said to me, don't forget us. And in that moment, I just really felt it was sort of a calling within the larger calling of my life. And so that was about 10 years ago, maybe a bit more. And I haven't, I haven't forgotten them. And so that really directed some of my graduate studies and my advocacy work and very much informs what I'm doing now with the International Social Justice Commission. So it started as a teenager, but then lots of other opportunities and influences over the years through Salvation Army Mission, including that and then sort of manifesting now through the social justice work. That's wonderful. I love hearing people's, the reasons that they were drawn to the work they do. And we often look at, we have specific, not always, but we often do have specific moments in our lives that really resonate with us. And that's, that's beautiful that you haven't forgotten them. Not only have you not forgotten them, they've inspired you. They have. Social justice, it's a term we hear daily, but a lot of people don't know exactly what it means. And maybe it has different meanings for different people. And maybe that is appropriate based on your perspective of the world or just the organization you work for. So for the Salvation Army, what is social justice? What does it mean? What is the meaning of that term? Thank you for your perceptive question. Uh, Some would even receive it as kind of a cracker in our midst because, yes, it's an explosive word. It's an explosive phrase in our day and age, uh, social justice. Um, Some people perceive it as a quasi-socialist, almost bordering on communism, camouflage word for income redistribution, so political lens. And uh, then there are significant numbers of church leaders, maybe especially in the Protestant expression of uh, Christianity, who see it as a threat to the proclamation mission of the church, proclamation of the gospel, announcing the kingdom of God, offering the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so they see that as a a distraction to which we would say to both no a thousand times no. And this is where the DNA of the Salvation Army 
really resolutely comes forward because we can say with confidence, even anyone remotely familiar with the quite dramatic, romantic history of the Salvation Army, that those two massive pillars, the proclamation of the kingdom of God and a social justice commitment to situations of inequity or injustice or poverty or marginalization have absolutely been part of who we are since the late 19th century. So we do both without flinching. Of course, when you do that, sometimes you'll annoy everyone, which I think maybe part of the mission of a justice commission is to actually remind people almost as a conscience that there are inequities and injustices and marginalizations And we are going to remind you of that. And that may actually be annoying, but that is our mission. So we're very committed to it. The way to sort of resolve it from our perspective is to say, really, it's not a political lens. It's not a liberal religious lens. It's biblical justice. And we can see that deeply in the roots of uh, both the Old Testament and New Testament. So we we feel fairly confident and uh, robust on that. Biblical justice. I like that. Yeah, I would say from the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that many are familiar with, that Jesus taught, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven, that that's one way to look at what justice would look like in societies, in other words, in a social setting. So when we see God's will being done on earth, which would mean no poverty, no abuse, no violence, no exploitation, no discrimination, that would be heaven on earth. And that's the way Jesus taught us to pray. And that's really the foundational scripture verse for the work of the ISJC. And we co-labor with people of many faiths or of no faiths also, no faith, just wanting to work toward the greater good, the flourishing of humanity. And that certainly intersects with our work with the United Nations. But we want to see God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven. And that, I think a lot of people, whatever our sort of imagining of that might be, uh, there is a wholeness, a shalom, right, with things just the way they're meant to be, a rightness to things. And from our framework, of course, it comes from the life and teaching of Jesus. And it's not uh, the idea of social justice. Of course, if justice doesn't manifest socially, as in relationships or in societies, then it's not really, it doesn't matter, right? It's not justice. It's not just So there has to be a social effect of the justice that we're laboring for. And it's not just abstractions either. While it does, it is founded in the life and teaching of Jesus, and there is advocacy involved and uh, amplifying the voices of marginalized, oppressed people. But with the result that we would hope that these things, our advocacy, would result in real-life insights into policies and practices and life-giving opportunities So it has very practical social implications, the work that we're doing. The ISJC seeks justice or helps really the marginalized, the oppressed achieve justice. I don't know if that's the right terminology, but as I I did my research into the ISJC, I saw the section on your website that says how we seek justice, and it talks about the methods that you employ. So if you wouldn't mind... Discuss a little bit about the day-to-day work, the communication, the advocacy, the research, the education that you and your team are doing to fulfill your mission. Sure. We, we have a threefold kind of a mission. They all begin with the letter I, 
So to sort of just set the context, we we certainly want to increase passion for justice issues around the world, but primarily our audience would be the 1.5 million Salvation Army soldiers, uh, members of the Salvation Army in the 132 nations around the world. So our parish is the globe. We're not North American, we're not Northern European and North American, we are global. And so from our relatively small building, we have access with international leaders every day of the week. It's a, a, a tremendous privilege. So we want to increase passion. Uh, but also we want to be strategic. So we want to inspire leaders. And our mandate, part of our brief of uh, appointment, is that we are authorized in, uh, to communicate on a one-to-one -one basis with Salvation Army leaders all over the world. And that happens again regularly. And so we do so, again, very strategically and, and deliberately. And then we want to influence partners. That's the third eye. And that's primarily the United Nations but also other very magnificent charities and uh, think tanks. We want the Salvation Army to be represented at the table. So that's the threefold goal. But the way we address that would be through the acronym CARE, C-A-R-E. And of course, a huge one these days is communications. So we aren't clever enough to think of this, but about three months before the pandemic hit our world, we shifted our mission, so to speak, to be less internalized and more externalized, and to sort of very deliberately increase our footprint on the multiple social media platforms available to us all. Then the pandemic hit, and in a way that side of who we are, um, not only did it not skip a beat, but it almost exponentially increased. So we've had very serious and significant increase in our social media presence, uh, reminding people again of the work of justice. A huge part of the world of social justice is advocacy. So that's the second letter in the acronym. And that arguably would be the hardest one. Um, if we imagine a court case where someone who's disempowered or weakened or without much resources has someone empowered to advocate on their behalf, that's a tremendously powerful image. And uh, William Booth was big on that for the Salvation Army. He created the poor man's lawyer. And I've seen that in action around the world where people who are disempowered uh, for any number of reasons has a stronger entity batting for them in their corner. Obviously, we provide resources, the never ending plethora of resources available to our, our world, uh, recommendations for books, web links, PDF articles, scholarly articles, creative videos, the references uh, and resources are never ending. And then finally, education. So one of my assignments, for instance, is um, I get to teach Salvation Army cadets in, in Suffern, New York. I'm doing that right now for 10 weeks. We go to London and teach at the International College for Officers, and we'll go where people invite us. So we've had a room full of uh, men and women who are in the recovery uh, ministry of the Salvation Army, struggling and dealing and facing their um, addiction to drugs and alcohol. We've had teenagers. And we've had rooms full of college-educated professors. So it's a wide range, and we take it wherever we get the invite. Al, one of the key ways that we're active in advocacy relates to the work of responding to modern slavery and human trafficking. So there is active engagement in response to the, the scourge of human trafficking in every single country where the Salvation Army serves. And there's an increasingly effective and agile 
network of activists, contact people, uh, communities of practice all around the world who are every single day uh, active in the lives of vulnerable people, particularly women and girls, as it relates to trafficking and exploitation. So there are, it's called the eight P's of our fight for freedom framework. This is a whole, a global strategy for the Savage Army's response to modern slavery and human trafficking. And so we're people of faith, so prayer, of course, is a key. We're in communities already. Often we serve in vulnerable communities. And so there's already a presence of prevention through some of the character building programs that we offer to children and young people and places for women. Uh, there's protection. We have shelters. We have safe houses. Uh, we partner with all kinds of other uh, activists and organizations involved in anti-trafficking and so on. So we're really trying to make the most of the strength of the Salvation Army globally in its internationalism and to be very responsive and proactive as it relates to anti-trafficking. So that is a great aspect of uh, advocacy and engagement that's happening around the world through Salvation Army people. You know, it's funny. I was I was had a list of questions that I wanted to ask you, and then I had like these one A, one B questions, and one of those questions was about modern slavery and human trafficking. But there was another one that really resonated with me, and that was the Salvation Army's, the ISJC's position on disability. And the reason I bring this up is because the really the inspiration for me getting involved in nonprofit and charity work was the birth of my niece. And my niece was born with a very rare neurological disorder called Sturge-Weber syndrome. And truly seeing her journey and her, her struggles with this illness changed my life. I'm proud to say that she has inspired me to be a better person. And I love that this is one of the focal points for the work that you all do, because we don't often think, unless we're directly affected, we don't often think about this group, uh, people who are suffering with illness or disability. And um, as an uncle to a little girl with a very rare disease and seeing those struggles, um, it means a lot to me to know that there are people like you out there fighting for this community. So if you wouldn't mind, can you speak a little bit about the advocacy work for people with disabilities? Well, thank you for highlighting that. What you've landed on, Al, is the Salvation Army's international positional statements. So these are statements made by the Salvation Army and they're applicable uh, around the world. So it's much bigger than the International Social Justice Commission. We have underneath the umbrella of the ISJC a task force of people representing many disciplines, uh, medical, educational, ethical, psychotherapist. And uh, this group gets together twice a year under normal circumstances. It would normally be in uh, London and make proposals to the general on matters of moral and social issues, moral and social justice. Well, you've landed on one that's the most recent. The position statement on disability was just approved um, a few months ago. And there was a sense within Salvation Army uh, circles, Salvation Army leadership, that we needed to have something on that. And what was quite beautiful about that particular one 
is that there was an immediate sense at the very beginning in the crafting of this statement that we needed to have someone who was in that community, someone with a disability to uh, add to the veracity of the statement. So that was that was key. That was important. Now, when we come out with a position statement, because it's often relatively complex issues, death penalty, refugees, sexism, it's not unusual to get some pushback. The position statement on disabilities was greatly received, especially from people like yourself who had a family member who had a disability. And uh, it was quite heartwarming to hear and receive the um, responses from people who said the overall sense of well-being they experienced when they saw that written down. And what was remarkable for me is that statistics would indicate that one in seven of the population of the world, one billion people, have some form of disability. Now, that's emotional as well as physical, but that's a, that's a very large number of people. So it was illuminating for me. And what was also apparent was I was in the room when the statement was ratified, was a genuine sense of conviction by some of the leaders in the room that without being intentional, they had overlooked people with disabilities as having leadership potential or being able to contribute to the mission. And uh, there was a real sense that some minds were being changed and some minds were being, being opened up, including my own. Well, it warms my heart because when I went to the website and, and like I said, I saw the others and several of them really resonated with me, but that jumped off the page, metaphorically, of course, not, not my computer screen, but it made me feel good. And I actually just this afternoon had a visit from my niece who is now 16 years old and she's doing great. But at the end of the day, she still has this dis disability that she lives with and grapples with and struggles with every day. And um, it's, you know, for me now, I don't see the disability anymore, but I do recognize her daily struggle with it. It means the world to, to me as an uncle, and I know it means the world to so many people who have family members and loved ones. And of course, it means the world to the people with the disabilities, to let them know that they are not forgotten, their voice is heard, and that they are valuable and an incredible part of our society, an equal part of our society. So I, I thank you for that. Just want to point out in terms of communication, uh, every month we focus on a particular global emphasis. And so the month of April in which we're recording this, April is Disability Awareness Month. And so all of our social media communications in the month of April focus on this positional statement on disabilities. And so we did that in the month of March for International Women's Day on sexism month of February, going backwards for Black History Month on racism, and so on. But April right now is Disability Awareness Month, and so all of our social media communications from our, our place, ISJC, are focused on people with disabilities. Perfect timing. Thank you for that. That's wonderful. Um, Colonel Richard, I am curious. You've mentioned London a few times, and I hear this crazy accent. So could you just briefly share a little bit about your background? Sure. I was born in a Salvation Army hospital in the East End of London. That's how much I'm a Salvationist, which is a pretty, pretty tough part of town. It would be like saying I was born in Harlem or the Bronx or something. And the Salvation Army had a hospital for low-income families, and um, I was born there. 
within 18 months of my birth, I was transported to Africa. My parents were Salvation Army teachers as officers in the, in the Congo, in the Congo, in uh, Central Africa. And so I was imprinted by Africa until I was 10, uh, an experience which I would never uh, regret. I have no regrets, nothing but positive, tremendous global sort of awakening uh, just, just by being a child in that country uh, from the mid-50s to the mid-60s. Came back, went through high school and college, and um, I am a fourth-generation Salvationist, so my parents, my grandparents, my great-grandparents were all leaders in the Salvation Army. But it took me coming to the States on an exchange program, the very same camp that Janet mentioned, Camp Wonderland in um, Sharon, Massachusetts. I came there at best as an agnostic, but I fell in love not only with uh, the inner city children from uh, Dorchester, Mattapan and Roxbury, the, the, the neighborhoods of Boston where most of the kids came from. I'd never seen such energetic, intelligent, bright, humorous, capable kids. Um, I was trained to be a teacher at the time, and, uh, but I made peace with God and I fell in love with Janet. So it was a life-changing decision and um, emigrated to the States. Had to wait a long time. That was my own sort of caution, but I became a citizen. But yeah, I still have a bit of a British accent, which gets me in trouble once in a while. We often talk about in nonprofit work and charity work, volunteerism, the rewards the rewards that the doer receives. Obviously, we're doing this work to, to bestow rewards on the recipients, the people we're, we're here to serve, but we often find that we are rewarded and sometimes, in some ways, I say for myself, I've gotten such great rewards from the work I've done and the advocacy work I've done for my niece and helping to uh, raise awareness about her illness that I sometimes feel guilty because I've received such great rewards. It's it's made me a better person. It's um, it's filled my heart to be a part of something bigger than myself. And I love sharing this message with people because I think we can really inspire and and get people excited about doing charity work and getting involved in nonprofit work and volunteerism when they learn about how it will make them feel and when they learn about all the rewards that we get by helping other people. So if you wouldn't mind, I'd love to hear a little bit about what it's done for you, how it's made you feel, those rewards, and and also the things you've learned from your work. I find the work that we're doing immensely satisfying. People will sometimes say to me, uh, do you enjoy it? And I do at times, but I think the word that describes it more so for me is it's extremely rewarding and meaningful. The fact that we are able to be part of, even from an administrative level, responding to human trafficking is such a great joy. Um, we're part of also a commercial enterprise called Others Trade for Hope which is a tool for job creation and empowerment and of poverty alleviation. It helps women become economically independent, uh, particularly targets women who are coming out of sex work and been victims of trafficking. Uh, these sort of things are immensely meaningful. And even though many of the people who are benefited are far away, but I know that I'm part of something much bigger than myself. And that's particularly uh, giving a leg up, lifting up people, amplifying their voices who might not otherwise have had that opportunity. 
And uh, raising awareness of these issues that are global, it's very easy for anyone, I think all of us, to get sort of in our own little world, our small sort of perspective. So the international angle, the international perspective of this sort of work is very enriching for me. And even as I described those years ago in London, my worldview changed dramatically during those years together and uh, has never, it continues to grow as I come to understand both the suffering, but also the strength and the heroism of so many people in so many challenging contexts. I just have the greatest respect for so many of the people uh, that we advocate for and alongside. And uh, it also puts any sort of burdens or difficulties in my own life in perspective, being able to see a bigger picture from others in the world. And I, I come away with a just heightened sense of respect for so many people from so many challenging contexts. It's, a, it's absolutely priceless to me, the sense of meaningfulness in this sort of work. Meaningfulness. That's a great way to describe it. The ISJC obviously is involved in a lot of and various different arenas, doing the advocacy work and educating and doing really the yeoman's work across the globe. Is there one particular area of your work that you are most proud of? Or maybe I should say it this way. Is there one specific accomplishment that you're most proud of for the ISJC? As we look across our world, Al, it can sometimes be overwhelming, the injustices and the inequities and the moral and social problems can be overwhelming. So we are very closely linked to the United Nations, as um, we've both mentioned before, and you may be familiar in 2015, the UN ratified 17 SDGs, Sustainable Development Goals. And we work very closely. So these are very easily found on the internet, on the UN website, the SDGs, and they reference global goals for the alleviation of hunger, of poverty, availability of water, health, gender equity, tackling racism, etc. And I have pondered in these years when I see the output of uh, work and correspondence and energy in this overwhelming tide of social need, the ones that sort of rise to the top in terms of attention, then they're, they're huge. But I would certainly say at the heart of the Salvation Army mission would be um, a mission to combat and alleviate hunger and poverty. That's a huge one. And that's a very ground level one. And, and the Salvation Army is well established in that. The issue of uh, systemic racism is a very much part of our conversation. And similarly for sexism. And that's a big part of the United Nations, uh, gender-based violence, Day of the Girl, uh, empowerment for women. There's a very well-attested conviction that as women are empowered to earn income, that that is a very measurable goal to reduce poverty in our world. Uh, women who experience the self-actualization of earning income by the work of their own hands or the work of their own uh, energies, that that benefits families and that benefits communities. So micro-enterprises, uh, others, global international, is huge in that regard. 
Uh, but we certainly find ourselves on the front line wrestling with asylum seekers and refugees. What began in the UN as an, an estimate for maybe tens of thousands of people being given the right to uh, seek asylum in our, our five, last five years has risen to uh, hundreds of thousands. And the world is just struggling. Uh, churches, charities, nations, border, immigration departments, just struggling. Just the enormous wave uh, coming out of certain parts of our world, uh, the heartbreaking stories of people seeking asylum and needing ref refuge. And then, of course, we have one that I think is going to grow with more and more significance, which is um, care for the environment, the realization of climate change. Uh, how can the Salvation Army be a leader in that regard? Same with the uh, plight of indigenous people around the world, whether it's Canada, USA, Australia, New Zealand, Philippines. Um, the tra tragedies that indigenous people, the original owners of the land, experience um, is certainly high one for the um, United Nations and um, is certainly part of ISJC discourse. So where do we start? Certainly the one that's most articulated in terms of our budget and our personnel would be um, modern slavery and human trafficking. I think God has given that to the Salvation Army beginning about 15 years ago as a real task for us to address. And um, we've been described as being the most active group around the world with our global international structure, boots on the ground, addressing those kind of issues. So we're only at the front end of that story, but it's not going to go away anytime soon. I would say the thing that I'm most rejoicing about is the Salvation Army's international response to modern slavery and human trafficking. It is a high priority and investment of human resources and energy. It's a, it's a top priority internationally. And so the coordination that's involved, the authentic engagement, it's a survivor-led uh, planning and response. So it's just a remarkable thing to be part of. And again, on a daily basis, extremely vulnerable people around the world are being supported, uh, protected, healed, really, by various means through the Salvation Army's work. And that is a great, great, great source of joy to me. Also, the United Nations annually in October has the International Day of the Girl. That's October 11th annually. So this past October, even with COVID and all the restrictions, we couldn't come in person, of course, but we sent the word out around the world to all the various communities in which the Salvation Army is present. And we work with a lot of girls and we asked them to speak on what it's like to be a girl in their day and in their context. And we got, it's all on our YouTube channel. We got all these wonderful videos of girls ranging from probably six years old up to teenagers from every nation around the world. Uh, telling their stories in their language, in their way, in their culture, and they were just fabulous. They were beautiful. They were confident. They were dynamic. I just absolutely reveled in that. So that was part of what we did virtually in celebrating the International Day of the Girl, and it just brought this global glimpse of uh, of international girls all around the world, and they're in some way involved with uh, Salvation Army ministry and programs. So that was a, I was actually weeping to watch those videos at the beauty and the, the potential of all these girls around the world. Yeah, Colonel Janet, you just mentioned your YouTube channel. So I'd love for you to share that with our, our listeners. Also, any other ways that our community can find you all and how can we help support your work? Yes, thank you. We are everywhere. 
in terms of social media platforms. So if you look at International, the Salvation Army International Social Justice Commission, we're there on YouTube, we're on Facebook, we're on Twitter, we're on Instagram, and we are very active. So all of our all of our information is there. And as I mentioned earlier, we keep track of, we stay in step with uh, global themes that are happening in real time. So if there's a UN focus, or as I mentioned, the Disability Awareness Month happening right now, we align all of our uh, active engagement with social media to the, the bigger global picture, as well as to sort of current circumstances that, uh, that just cry for attention. So yeah, we're everywhere. If you search out the Salvation Army International Social Justice Commission on all the social media platforms available, you will find us there. And they are very active accounts. They're not dormant at all. And then you mentioned, obviously, you have this this day coming up. What other things are on your on the calendar for the next, you know, three to six months? And how can we support you? So at the end of September, we have the first ever International Moral and Social Issues video symposium. And we chose, the leadership team chose to address future-oriented areas of study. And so we're looking at artificial intelligence, gender issues, uh, corruption issues, um, modern slavery and human trafficking, nationalism. And these are well-respected speakers. And uh, the papers will be published um, uh, within a month of their um, sharing. And uh, other than the technical side of things, which always leaves me a little bit sleepless, uh, we're really, really looking forward to it. And that's at the end of September. But that's a big event. And this will be the first year you were saying, will this become an annual event? I'm suddenly triply nervous with the notion of an annual event. <laughs> I think we'll see how no this pressure. one goes. <laughs> we'll see how this one goes. Um, I'm sh- I would certainly like to see it happen regularly. I would imagine every three to four years, but that's just conjecture at this point. Very good. Very good. Uh, what, you know, we, we always think about, and at least I do when I approach the work that, that I do with the Salvation Army, I, I make a plan for the short-term goals and the long-term goals. I'm curious, what are the long-term goals of the ISJC? If I can just pick up on the the goals for further development as it relates to modern slavery and human trafficking for a moment. As I mentioned, even within the past couple of years, we have a network established so much that every single country has a contact person for the Salvation Army for modern slavery and human trafficking response. We have a global strategy And within nations, people are developing their particular strategy for by way of response. So in terms of further development, we would like to see that implementation make its way to the ground level, to the grassroots, uh, more strongly and more practically everywhere around the world. So we have a a very well-established kind of a high-level global network. We have a contact person in every country and we have communities of practice that are developing their sense of connectivity and best practices and mutual support. But there's a lot of work to do. And I would say the closer we get to the ground in terms of real influence, the better. And to see more and more uh, people both uh, rescued, you know, brought out of some of those terrible situations, but then also more effective prevention because of heightened awareness. Our people are more aware of what it looks like, what to watch out for and how to be intervening in the lives of vulnerable people as it relates to the dangers of modern slavery and human trafficking. So some huge goals, a lot of development yet to come, 
but a very, very good start. That's great. I'm going to put on my Salvation Army cap for a minute, if you don't mind. And it's interesting, when I came to the organization over, you know, it was roughly three years ago, I don't think I fully understood all of the work the Salvation Army does. The work that the ISJC is doing is really, I guess, in some ways, amplifying and and really sharing the message of what the Salvation Army does on the ground level. So I'd like to just take a minute if you could share a little bit about that. Yeah. In terms of your own personal interest in disabilities, the Salvation Army has joined our, our strength with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goal, a Good Health and Well-Being. And we are invested profoundly globally in the work of healing. So just a little bit more information from a, an international perspective. The Salvation Army works in over 130 countries, and in every community in which we work, every country, uh, there's interest in a response to health concerns. We currently have 172 health facilities in 73 countries, 38 hospitals, 134 clinics. We have treated, just last year, close to 2 million patients and we have uh, nursing and midwifery training schools as well. So we have clinics out in the bush uh, in many countries around the world, maternal and health, child health services, sexual and reproductive health, HIV AIDS response, uh, emergency care, ophthalmology. We have schools for the blind, for the hearing impaired. We're in the midst of the slums in the most um, challenging cities around the world with educational programs for children and so on. Just tremendous work. And that's just really focusing on uh, health and well-being. So, Colonel Richard, what do you see as the role of the ISJC? I think that we serve as the conscience for social justice, uh, both for the Salvation Army and, and other agencies. Uh, we're there to prick consciences, uh, but we're also a conduit so we, we flow a, uh, information back and forth. I see that as an important part of who we are. And then I see us as a catalyst. So this is three C's now. Uh, we're catalytic in terms of inspiring. Uh, that would be tremendously gratifying. And, and I think that especially applies to young adults. There's an, an, it seems like an innate attraction to matters of social justice in young adults who might not be instinctively interested in going to a prayer meeting or a holiness meeting or worship service, but will be readily give their energies for any number of social justice issues. So we want to channel that and also share the good news. And then the last one, the last C, which has sort of been playing around in my mind these days, if you're familiar with the Oxford and Cambridge boat race on the River Thames, you have these eight broad-shouldered muscular athletes who are with the oars, uh, but at the in, in the stern of the boat is the little coxswain. And um, I think the ISJC is like the coxswain because we have a megaphone and we're small, but we are very loud, we're very persistent, we shout encouragement, and um, I think that's what we do to a lot of people. Um, of course, you could say sometimes the coxswain is annoying because we're doing as best as we can. Will you please not remind us of how much more we need to do. But someone wrote to me and said, yeah, the coxswain is the only one that sees the direction where the boat's going. I thought, well, that'll preach. <laughs> <laughs> and, and now in American English, 
what is that term for us uh, us Yankees? What did you say? Coxwain, C-O-X-W-A-I-N, the Coxwain, yeah. Okay, so that's like the director of the boat. We'd like to think so. <laughs> <laughs> is there a parting message that you have for our community? Yes, in thinking about the ways that people can engage with the work of justice, our hashtag is Seeking Justice Together, that we recognize that the needs in the world are too enormous for anyone to do it alone, that we really have to work together, be it formal partnerships or individuals just joining in this pursuit of justice. So we shared the social media context and contact information for listeners to join in and to follow and to become aware and to participate with us. And in terms of sort of a heart response, for anyone who's listening, I just, the words that God spoke to Moses, I just share with you, as he was leading the Hebrews out of slavery. And you may recall the story that they were facing the Red Sea on one side and the uh, the, the Egyptians pursuing them behind. And it was a very precarious look like a disastrous situation. And so Moses understandably cried out to God for rescue. And God said, why are you crying out to me? What's in your hand, Moses? And Moses you know, held up his staff and the Red Sea parted and they made it, made it out safely. So we face these enormous challenges in this day, in these days, and can feel really hemmed in with suffering and injustice and just the overwhelmingness of the challenges of our day. But I think the message to us remains, what is it in your hand? We can't do everything, but we all have something that we can do. What's in your hand? And to that we're responsible, really, to do what we can with what we have and uh, to make that available for the, the good of the world, for the greater good, for the betterment of society, for the flourishing of humanity. And so I just invite the listeners to consider within your own life what's in your hand that you can use and who knows how it could be used for uh, great deliverance for people who are suffering or who are vulnerable. Beautifully said. Well, this is Difference Makers, and you, Colonels Janet and Richard, are real difference makers. Thank you for sharing your incredible story with our community, and thank you for making a difference through your inspiring work. Thanks, Al. Thank you so much, Al. On behalf of Difference Makers Global Community, I want to thank you for listening. And if you'd like to learn more about today's guest, visit differencemakers.org. There you'll find a dedicated page for each of our Difference Makers and a link to their charity's website, where you can learn more about their inspiring work and support the mission. And for our readers out there, I have two books that I wrote that I'd love for you to check out, Crossing America for a Cure and Running the Coast for a Cure. These books chronicle charity adventures I did in honor of my niece, Jenna, who was born with a rare neurological disorder called Sturge-Weber syndrome. Both books can be purchased on Amazon.com, and all profits from book sales are donated to Sturge-Weber Research. Thanks again for listening, and remember, in each of us is the power to make a difference.